We all struggle with distraction in some shape or form, whether that be phone notifications, interruptions at work, or getting sucked into the social media app feeds. We all have weaknesses for something that takes us away from what we really want. Through the book Indistractable, we'll learn how to reduce distractions and turn that into traction towards fulfilling the goals that you really want to fulfill. We'll also apply some of these tactics to your personal finances. Welcome to the Delve Into Money podcast. I am your host, Curtis Haney. This is the personal finance podcast where we attempt to demystify money by reviewing books and applying what we learn to our own financial journeys. Welcome to episode four on the book Indistractable by the author Nur Eyal. He wrote the book Hooked, which was a Wall Street Journal bestseller. I think it made other bestseller lists too. That was the book that was used as kind of the framework for all of these social media apps and how they got your attention. So if anyone is going to know how to tell us to be indistractable or to become less distractible, he is the guy to do it. Today, we're going to talk about kind of the outline of the book, and then we're going to look at ways that we can apply this book and these ideas to our financial lives. So let's jump right in without further ado. A quote from the book says, the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Planning ahead ensures you follow through. Another quote, I discovered that living the life we want requires not only doing the right things, it also requires we stop doing the wrong things that take us off track. I recently did the episode on make time, and I'm going to hit on a few of the same notes that I did in that book, but I feel like it's extremely important instead of looking at it strictly from the productivity standpoint, I am going to focus more on this from a financial aspect. In his book, he's breaking it down into to four parts, a four-part system that he talks about. He talks about the difference between distraction and traction. Distractions are things that stop us from achieving our goals. Traction are things that lead us towards our goals. So through this episode, we're going to use that language in the way that he used that language. So hopefully we're on the same page as far as making that language consistent. Applying this to our finances, distractions are things that distract us from that final goal, whatever goal we've set to achieve. Now, this is operating under the assumption that we have set financial goals for ourselves. And as we get more and more into this podcast, I'm going to talk more and more about that because it is super important that we know where we're going with our financial lives. This is more than just having a budget. 
This is more than just the day-to-day housekeeping that we do with our money, with our bills, with everything else. This is figuring out what future you're shooting towards and knowing that that is where you're headed. So the things that distract you from that future and, and real, really, I would argue it's just the unplanned distractions, right? We can have distractions, things that stop us from achieving our goals. If we plan those distractions, those distractions, I think, are no longer distractions. They're things that keep us sane along the journey. The other thing is what he calls traction. And those are the things that are going to help us achieve our goals. And so as we talk about this, he talks about making us indistractable, making us to where we're not squirrel off to this other thing and that we can stay on target towards the goals and towards the things that we're trying to achieve. The things that distract us or the things that can create traction are our internal and our external triggers that cause us to either get off track or stay on track. A trigger can be something that keeps us on our goal, that keeps us in traction, keeps us moving towards what we want to move towards. A trigger can also be a distraction that takes us away. So a good example of this is, is if we get home from work in the evening or we want to spend time with our family and we find that instead, while well, instead of playing with a child or instead of connecting with your spouse, that you're pulling out a phone, that could be, frankly, depending on how you look at it, an internal or external trigger that's distracting you from the goal of connecting with your spouse or your child, whatever that looks like. So that's just a real small example of what a distraction could look like. This book is broken down into, and I actually have this book right here. So if you hear a few pages flipping, that's just me flipping through the book. But there are four parts to his system that he created. And then there's an additional three parts in the book where he addresses certain situations. So part one of his four-part system, number one, we want to master our internal triggers. He lays out in this section practical ways to identify and manage the psychological discomforts that lead us off track. He looks at what really motivates us, time management, looking at those things inside of you that the tasks, the temperaments that we have. In part two, he talks about making time for traction and looks at the importance of making time for the things that we really want to do. We do this by, he talks about time blocking, we'll talk a little bit about, and he talks about scheduling your most important relationships and syncing with people at works for meeting or other things like that. In part three, he talks about hacking back external triggers. So he wants to look at the external triggers ask critical questions, look at ways to hack back email, group chats, other messaging, smartphones, desktops. Uh, He wants to examine all of those triggers that hamper our productivity and diminish our well-being. In part four, 
He talks about preventing distraction. So once we've done parts one through three of mastering our internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back external triggers, we want to prevent distractions by creating packs. And packs will help rein us in, ensuring we do what we say we're going to do with pre-commitments. So packs are those commitments that we are making to ourselves, to others, and in whatever way that looks like. They could be effort packs, meaning you have to do something to get there. They could be price, have a cost associated with them, or identity packs. And that is the basis, the outline for this book. Part five, he talks about your workplace. Part six, he talks about raising children that are indistractable. And then part seven, he talks about relationships. So I enjoyed this book. I would say that this book is is extremely practical. It seems like I'm focusing on those early on, but I think that that's extremely valuable. So let's jump right into the takeaways that I have for this book. Takeaway number one, distractions are proximity causes most of the time, not the root cause. Unless we deal with the root causes, we'll find other ways to distract ourselves. So this was in chapter three of the book labeled what motivates us really. And I thought this was something that was really worth looking at and had a really good financial application to it. Right now, we'll focus specifically on just the distraction part of it. And then in the second half, we'll talk about the financial application. A quote from this section, it says, most people don't want to acknowledge the uncomfortable truth that distraction is always an unhealthy escape from reality. How we deal with uncomfortable internal triggers determines whether we pursue healthful acts of traction or self-defeating distractions. I really enjoyed this particular chapter because I think it gets to the root of what we're talking about, and I'm repeating root a lot here, but A lot of times we look at the distractions that are in our lives and we think that if we eliminate that, that we're going to be all right, that we're going to solve the problem. But a lot of times the things that are distractions in our lives are things that we're using to cope for the real distractions, the deeper down internal turmoil that we have. I am in no way a therapist. I don't want to play a therapist. But I don't think you have to be into therapy. I don't think you have to be into the softer side of things to know things that we distract ourselves with are many times to cover up for other things that we're missing. A good example of this is if you're in relationship with your spouse A lot of times we'll fight over the goofiest things. It could be about taking up the trash. It could be about what you're having for dinner. 
right? It seems like a lot of marriage relationships revolve around food. I don't know if that says what that says about us, but it says something about us. The reality is, is that when we're fighting about those things, they typically are not the things that are really bugging us. And it takes some time of discussion. It takes some real heartfelt conversations to really get to the depth of what's causing it. It could be that the reason you don't like your wife tells you to take the trash out is because you feel like she's controlling you and you feel like you're smothered, right? Or it could be that you have some insecurity about whatever this element is, whatever this task is. Now, I feel like I should preface this as this is not an example of a fight that me and Samantha have had. We did not fight about taking out the trash. Not to say that we haven't fought about as trivial things, because we absolutely have, but a lot of those things are cover for just the deeper feelings that are there. There are a lot of different ways that you can look at this, but we need to acknowledge the root causes because otherwise, if we continue to treat the symptoms, we will continue to see new symptoms pop up and we'll never get to the bottom of what's truly causing this. And what that means is, is that you will now continue and continue and continue to fight this and you won't ever be able to get past it. This is a huge issue in our financial lives. Again, I'll discuss that here in a little bit. So let's move on to takeaway number two. Takeaway number two. Chapter six of the indistractable book talks about reimagining your internal triggers. We need to think differently about our internal triggers in four different steps. Number one, we look for discomfort that precedes the distraction, focusing in on the internal trigger. Step two, we write down those triggers. Step three, you explore your sensations and feelings. And step four, beware of the liminal moments or transitions from one thing to another. I thought this was this was an interesting thing. And one of the things that I thought is there, there's a piece of this that he called the 10-minute rule. But before I talk about that real quick, I want to, to talk about this goes back to things that we will continue to talk about with our finances, but we have to be intentional about the things that we do. So if we are getting distracted uh, by triggers, by things that are happening in our lives, uh, by the things that are around us, uh, by our mindsets, if we're getting distracted and we don't ever examine those things, then we're not going to be able to change the way we act. If every single night I turn on a show and I go grab a bag of potato chips and I eat those potato chips out of the bag, no thought as to what I'm eating for that whole 30 minutes of whatever that show is, then I go put the potato chips up and in the morning I get on the scale and I look and am frustrated day after day 
of why I've not lost any weight, and I never examine the things I eat, examine how that habit could be affecting the goal that I'm trying to reach every morning when I look at that scale, I have no chance for success. I like his four steps of look for the discomfort that precedes it, focus and write down that trigger, explore the sensations and feelings that you're having, and then beware of the transitions of when you're going from one thing to another, because those transitions are the killer. Those transitions are where you can get off track. I know when I'm at work, it's when I finish one task and try and get to the other is when I'm most likely to get distracted, go look at a YouTube video, go get on my phone, go check email when I'm not planning to check email, and those transitions will kill your day. And it applies personally as well. When you're going from one thing to another, you could get distracted by what's on TV, by your cell phone, by whatever that is, and not make it to the task that you're trying to do. I can't tell you how many Saturday mornings have turned into Saturday afternoons because I pulled up my phone or computer and did not realize the time that was passing. And all I was trying to do was transition from, say, my Bible study to going and working outside. And in that transition, that distraction caused hours of chaos. One of the things he talks about, and this, this goes for the urges or the feelings that you have, is that if you feel an urge, he talks about the 10-minute rule. And he tells us that when you have the urge to tell yourself you need something, when you have the urge to want to do whatever it is, to eat that thing, to step away, to take a break, that you need to wait 10 minutes. He calls this surfing the urge, and I don't think that's his term. I think that has been used in some research. But by surfing the urge, you're neither pushing it away, you're neither ignoring it, or you're not acting either. And that helps you cope with it until it subsides. There's some research out there that shows that while we continue to try and push stuff away, that effort to push things away makes it more likely to be recalled into our mind at a later point. So that's why his four steps of looking at what's happening is really going to help you cope with those bad triggers more constructively. If after 10 minutes, you still have that urge, he says that it's okay that you go act on that urge. So a good example of this is, is if you're wanting an afternoon snack, that first time that urge comes up, don't try and push that out of your mind because that will just intensify if you just continue to try and ignore it. But you can look, say it is 2.31. At 2.41, if I have this and I still want it, I can go and I can have that afternoon snack. But what happens and what you'll see happen a lot of the times is that by surfing that urge, you will no longer desire that 10 minutes from now. I've tried this in a lot of different ways, um, and, and it really does help. It's easy to say, absolutely not, I'm not going to think about that. But if you give yourself a time in the future that you can revisit it, it takes that mental load off of you and says, nope, we're waiting 10 minutes to let this happen. 
to add on to this, in chapter 8, he talks about reimagining your temperament. Uh, he talks about, in, in kind of folk psychology, they talk about willpower and talk about it being a finite resource. A professor from the University of Toronto did some research and, and kind of came around and said, hey, willpower is not a finite resource, but instead acts like an emotion. Just as we don't run out of joy or anger, willpower ebbs and flows in response to what's happening to us and how we feel. This is a perfect complement to this 10-minute rule. It's saying, hey, my willpower is low right now, but give me 10 minutes. We'll see where my willpower is at that point. This also means that we can manage our willpower and that our lack of motivation is a temporary state. A quote from this section of the book says, Addicts' beliefs regarding their powerlessness was just as significant in determining whether they would relapse after treatment as their level of physical dependence. I think this is extremely interesting because it goes back to we need to quit telling ourselves these bad stories of how we can't do something. We need to quit telling ourselves that, that we are helpless because what we believe about it is going to affect how we act on it. If we're constantly beating ourselves down mentally, we are absolutely not going to be able to overcome that hurdle. Eventually, it becomes too much, and we're going to give in to whatever it is that is there for us. So by exploring our sensations, our internal triggers, we're not allowing them to come back so harshly, which is going to help us in our fight all along the way. Takeaway number three. Chapter 9 talks about turning your values into time. A quote from the book says, You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it's distracting you from. Chapter 9, he talks about time boxing. I'm going to spend a real short period of time on this, but I feel like it goes really well with takeaway number two. He talks that, we need to eliminate the white space, the, the space that allows us to get distracted. So if we will schedule our time throughout the day, we don't allow ourselves to fill the white space with junk. And that if we're filling the white space or if we're filling the space with junk, we know that it is taking the place of something that was on our schedule. So ask yourself, we want to reflect when in my schedule did I do what I said I would do and when did I get distracted? And then number two, we want to refine, are there any changes I can make to my calendar that will help me the time I need to better live out my values? These two questions will help us as we try and time box, as we try and better manage our time. This goes in line with kind of the previous one, right? of if we allow ourselves that space, we are going to fill that space with the things that are struggles for us. So to summarize our takeaways, we need to look at what really motivates us, what is really causing the distraction, and get to the root. Takeaway number two, we need to think differently 
about our internal triggers. We need to reflect on them. We need to figure out the specifics of those triggers. And then number three, we need to time box, fill our white space so that we do not get distracted so easy. And if we do get distracted, we know what we're getting distracted from. And then we can ask ourselves, reflect. We're going to take a real quick break and we're going to come back and talk about the financial applications. If you've made it this far, I want to thank you so, so much for listening to the podcast. I would love for you to go on your favorite platform and give us a rating and review. It would be extremely helpful, the social proof that people need to join us. If you have a book that you think would be great to talk about, or you have something that you're struggling with financially, I'll put a link in the show notes. Click on that link and give us the feedback that you have because early on in this journey, it's super, super important that we hear from you so we can make this show what you, the listener, wants. So again, I want to thank you so, so much, and we'll be back to the episode right after this. Okay, we have two financial applications for this little section. The first application is going to be talking about the root causes of our money distractions. This goes back to the fact that we need to have goals when it comes to our money. So we cannot have distractions unless we have goals that we're being distracted from. You can look at this specifically when looking at your bills. The bills are the result. It's not the ultimate distraction. It's not the root cause. But if you look at your bills, there's a few questions you can ask. What are you paying for that's not increasing your happiness? What are you paying for that you're not using to the extent that you should be using it? This is money that's going down the drain and that's potentially stopping you from reaching those goals that you've set for yourself, which then makes it a distraction from that ultimate goal. Another question is, what are you paying for that is to keep up with the Joneses? And I apologize to the actual Joneses that I know. But keeping up with the Joneses is going to distract you because that may not, in particular, be on your goals. The root of your money distraction very rarely has to do with you, but it's what you see around you and what you put as your internal expectations. So we need as individuals and as couples to set our expectations together. We need to understand what those expectations are. We need to understand how we're going to get where we want to get. And we need to understand what is distracting us or slowing us down from reaching those goals. If your goal is to go on three vacations a year and it does not stop you from your goal of saving X thousand a year, then you can absolutely do both things. 
I am not here to espouse a belief that we all need to save 50% of our income. I'm not here to tell you that the only way to go about it is to save, save, save. The reality is we are all looking for different things. So if a version of keeping up with the Joneses is what's important to you, that needs to be one of your goals, but it needs not to conflict with another goal. And so if you're struggling to meet multiple goals, you need to determine what are the true desires versus the desires that are based off of status or based off of external triggers that you have. We're also all framed by these internal things that we grew up with that we may not even know or acknowledge at this point. I grew up in, a, in an extremely stable household, and I'm so thankful for, for the way I grew up and the atmosphere I grew up in. But an unintended thing that happened as we grew up is that in my, my mother's family and in all that extended family, there was a big focus on education, and that focus on education meant that you were to follow a traditional path no matter what. It was not an intentionally bad thing and really not a bad thing at all, but it puts you down a path that if your goal is to go start a business and be an entrepreneur, that would be a path that would make it very, very hard because you weren't going to have the risk tolerance that someone else that grew up in a household with entrepreneurs in it. So you have to look at what your goals are. You have to look at your background. You have to look at the way you're raised. You have to look at your other external triggers and figure out what distractions are pulling you away from those goals that you hold so, so dearly. I'm super excited to be putting together a guide to help you and your spouse or you as an individual through your annual money plan, uh, setting goals out for the future, what your guys' vision are, and then help backtrack that into a, a plan or a budget that you want to abide by. So be looking for that in the next month, six months, two years, you know, whenever I get to it, right? Another thing is, and I've talked about this, but I want to say it directly, is it's important that if you have a significant other, that you talk about those plans together. You want to make sure you're in the same page and you want to make sure when you're not on the same page that you can talk through the ins and outs of that and know how you're going to address those things. Financial application number two. In chapter six of the book, he talks about the 10-minute rule, which I already talked about quite a bit, so I'm not going to recap that. If you want to, you can look in the show notes click on where that is. You can listen to that section. Come back to this. The way that we can apply the 10-minute rule in your own life, if we go to the store and we want that shirt or we want those pants or we want that toy that we like, say it's a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles toy. If you want that toy, leave the store, come back 24 hours later and purchase it. I have done this a lot of times this has helped me spend a lot less money because you realize those things that at that moment you had this just insane urge to purchase were things 
that 24 hours later you could have cared less about. By waiting, you're allowing yourself to mull over. You're allowing yourself to not make rash decisions that you're going to later regret. We use the excuse that we can always bring it back, but the reality is bringing it back requires a lot more effort and means that we're a lot more likely to keep that item. If, and this is a big contingency here, but say you're not going to be able to get the item, it's on sale, whatever it is, I'll give you a pass, you can purchase it, whatever. If it's in your budget, you absolutely purchase it. But maybe hide it from yourself, don't immediately use the item, and then come back to it. Make sure you're still in that return window and decide, again, do I want to keep this? Do I want to return this? It's much less likely you're going to return it than if you didn't purchase it to begin with. But it's an alternative if you absolutely have to. But if you know that you're a person that's going to use that as your excuse, just act like you didn't hear that. Act like we didn't talk about that at all. I can tell you from personal experience in doing this, I had things that I really wanted the day that I saw it, that 24 hours or later, I completely got distracted by something else and couldn't even remember what it was that I was going to purchase. Another method, another way, this is kind of a modified, it's not the 10 minute rule, but another way to, to apply this is we as, as a family like to have weekly financial meetings. You don't have to do them that frequent, but this is something that we like to put on the schedule. Weekly turns into every two or three weeks a lot of times, but that's okay because that's the benefit of scheduling them weekly. They're still going to happen. Whereas if you schedule a monthly and you miss one, it's a lot more time to elapse. But if there's something that you want to buy, set a schedule with either your partner or a friend where you need to justify or pitch them on why this item is needed. This is something that's going to make you think a little bit more deeply about why you need that thing. So when you go get that shirt, you want to get that shirt, you tell them, this is the shirt I want. You have to then justify, oh, it's filling this hole in my closet. Hey, you can now go look at your closet and you can prove to them that you don't have this item. Whatever your justification is, it forces you to think a little bit more deeply about what you're doing. And it forces there to be a second opinion, an unbiased opinion of, is this a justified purchase? I'm not saying that they should always get the final say, but they may see things in that purchase that you don't see. They may be able to fill in the gaps that you cannot fill in. Two financial applications there. Let's dig in to the root causes of your money distractions. What bills, what things are you paying for? That's money down the drain, not increasing your happiness. Let's have open conversations. And then financial application number two. Let's pause before we purchase, wait 24 hours, leave the store, have to come back the next day, or set aside something and pitch why you need to purchase it to a partner or to a friend. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me today. This week, if you've gained value from this, if you think that someone in your life or someone that you know could learn from this content, I'd love if you would share this with one friend that you think could learn something new. If you learned something yourself today, 
and want to share that, I'd love for you to reach out to me on delveintomoney.com. You can go to the contact page and you can leave me a voicemail. You can email me. You can reach out on social media. However you want to reach me, I would love to hear from you. Until next week, remember, healthy financial decisions are intentional financial decisions. Intentional decisions this week lead to healthy financial futures. Start today and see you next week.